This is The Value Proposition, a podcast by Barrow Hanley, where you'll find value-oriented investment strategies to institutional investors, mutual funds, and family offices. Hello, and welcome to The Value Proposition. I'm your host, Amadi Enzi with Barrow Hanley. Joining me today, I have Pranay Laharia with our equity research team covering the healthcare sector. Pranay has over two decades of experience covering both technology and healthcare companies. And today we're going to talk about COVID-19 and the progression in this country, specifically here in Texas. So Pranay, welcome and thank you for uh, joining me today. Thank you. So uh, Pranay, can you walk us through the progression of the virus? You know, we've been told that it originated in China, spread through Europe, then hitting the U.S. hard this March. Is that an accurate timeline or is there data pointing elsewhere? So Amadi, viruses can be dated. Similar to carbon dating for fossils, scientists have a way of looking at variances in circulating viruses and come up with a reasonably good estimate of the timeline. We think this virus started circulating in humans in fall 2019, somewhere between August and October, but it remained under the radar for several weeks. The first reported cluster was in Wuhan wet market in December, and from there it spread very, very rapidly. It is very transmissible, so it escaped China before they could contain it. I think it's fair to say that almost wherever it went, it likely spread silently and undetected for weeks, possibly months, before official discovery. Amadi, sometimes I'm asked the question, was this virus engineered? The best Western scientists are confident that humans just do not yet have the ability to engineer or breed something like this and the virus totally lacks fingerprints of human intervention, which any educated scientist would be able to tell. Pranay, in my lifetime, I've seen other health scares. For example, the swine flu, avian flu, and even SARS. How is COVID-19 different from other coronaviruses, and why has it spread so quickly and been so deadly? Well, what makes a virus devastating for humans is a certain combination of infectiousness and deadliness. SARS-CoV-2 is not only more infectious, but it is also an order of magnitude more deadly than the two variants of flu you mentioned. So it's clearly different from those two. And then there are the other coronaviruses you mentioned. So humans have four ancient circulating coronaviruses. These have descriptive names like OC43 and 229E, but this quartet of coronaviruses are ancient, with some having crossed over to humans hundreds of years ago. But they just cause common cold. In fact, about one-third of common colds are caused by this quartet of coronaviruses. They're not very lethal at all. And then the more recent coronaviruses, the original SARS and MERS, were so much more deadly that they made their presence known loudly. The disease onset was very acute, so it was easy to contain them. What is unique about SARS-CoV-2 is that it's a silent spreader. It has unique characteristics. It starts the viral shedding, which means it is infectious, roughly two days before a person is even symptomatic. And then many patients have such mild symptoms that they don't even know they have the disease, yet they are spreading it. And even worse, 30 to 50% of people are asymptomatic carriers, but they are still spreading the disease. That makes it really difficult to contain this virus. It has such a unique balance of transmission and mortality metrics that it is really once-in-a-century type of a virus. 
and we really need to stop comparing it to flu. Thank you for that. You mentioned some of the other, I think you described it as a quartet of ancient coronaviruses that I guess have been around for centuries. With this coronavirus, and if we know, what are the long-term health implications for people uh, who are infected and those who have recovered? Well, the deadliness for infected people is quite high with this virus. But as far as the long-term effects go, we still don't know the answer, Amadi. The interesting thing to observe is that even the majority of asymptomatic patients are showing what is called ground glass opacity in their lungs. It's a signal of potential damage in the CT scans. So the long-term effects are a real possibility, especially pulmonary long-term effects, but they will only be known with time. So you mentioned people who may be asymptomatic and spreading the virus to others. You know, we watch news reports about the daily counts, both here in Texas and across the country in many different hotspots. I guess my question is, is, is the virus transmittable on objects? And then following that up, what can we do personally to protect both ourselves and stop the spread of the virus within our own communities? Yeah, it's transmissible through surfaces. Uh, we know that. And we should continue to wash our hands regularly if we are in areas where we could be touching infected surfaces. Having said that, it's been quite clear for some time now that the primary method of transmission for this virus is through the air. Whether that is droplets or aerosols is a relatively unimportant technical distinction. Just think of it as transmission through air and breath. A lot of people don't realize that the probability of getting infected and the subsequent severity of the disease is proportionate to the amount of viral exposure. So you want to minimize healthy people breathing the same air as the infected people. So what should you do? You should avoid crowded places. You should avoid the bars and the pubs, indoor areas where air circulation is poor and where wearing the masks the whole time is not practical, such as indoor dining. Just avoid those places. You should maintain physical distance, even if it's outside. A good rule of thumb is that if you think you're breathing the same air as someone else, wear a mask. It doesn't bring the risk to zero, but it certainly reduces it dramatically. To me, it's quite disappointing to hear many authorities continuing to dismiss the evidence around airborne transmission. In fact, one of the early recommendations from the Chinese delegate that visited Lombardy in March was that wearing a mask should be mandatory. And then in order to stop the spread of the disease, if you feel you have any of the classic symptoms, you obviously need to immediately get tested and self-isolate, and then you need to inform people around you so they can self-quarantine. That's just a common civic duty. I think it's worth noting that while recording this podcast, we are maintaining a safe six feet away from each other. So thank you for that. Although we did debate wearing the mask. <laughs> well, that is true. Pranay, at this point, can you tell me which countries have successfully bent the curve and or stopped the spread of the virus and why? Why have they been successful? What are they doing differently than we are doing here in this country? Well, a large number of countries have been successful. Almost all of Europe has been successful, Australasia, and developed Asia like China, Taiwan, and South Korea. The way they have done it is through aggressive suppression initially, and then keeping the disease suppressed. So the authorities in these countries, they reacted very strongly to shrink the initial spread. 
And then many of them instituted a very strong test, trace, and isolate program. Now, in some countries, tracing is easier. Like China has a broadly accepted national surveillance program, so that makes it easy. South Korea has a similar authority given to health officials after the SARS breakout, so that makes it easier for them. But many of the countries had to deploy new technologies, like Hong Kong deployed tracking devices for infected people. And for isolation, several countries had risk-graded isolation centers. That means they had separate isolation center for people who were confirmed to be infected and a different one for those who were probable cases. So they managed to stop the transmission even within families, which is really hard to do if you just send the people back to their homes to isolate. And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, the citizens of these countries acted responsibly. They accepted the viciousness of the virus and they understood their own role in keeping the spread suppressed. Once the disease is suppressed, it's a lot easier to keep it that way. You just need to make some minor adjustments in behavior. But it requires a whole population to be on board, and that's how they did it. Pranay, we're starting to see a second wave of infections here in this country, and it's no secret that Texas is um, one of the worst states in that regard. Why are we seeing such high numbers in parts of the country now versus coastal cities like New York and Seattle, which at the beginning were the perceived epicenters and jump-off points of the virus. What has changed? Well, it's been a very mixed story across the United States. Almost the whole country did do the initial lockdown to suppress the disease, but many, many states did not use that time well to either fully suppress the spread or to put in place tracing and isolating protocols. And too many states reopened too quickly with very little change in behavior or protocols. Many leaders and citizens have been very slow to accept the seriousness of this virus and the importance of social distancing and wearing a mask. The good news is that the message is slowly starting to sink in, so the future is not necessarily a bad foregone conclusion in the US. And if you can call it good news, another good news is that the infections currently are tilted towards a younger population, which tend to be more risk-taking. So the fatality rates are much lower than, than they were in April timeframe. But still, any loss of life is very painful. Amadi, the part that I worry about, or the part of the world I worry about, is really the emerging markets. The population density there is very, very high. It's very difficult to isolate and social distance. And this virus will not be contained easily in emerging markets. And I really fear a lot of human pain coming in emerging markets. Still, at this point, more than 90% of global population is now in advanced stage of reopening. And... My expectation would be that you would see sporadic hotspot shutdowns and rollbacks in the future, mostly throttled by hospital capacity. But I think large-scale lockdowns of March and April scale are quite unlikely in the future. You mentioned the, the spike in infection rates in the younger uh, population. Herd immunity has been a solution uh, if we can call it that, to mm -hmm. this virus. Mm -hmm. Is that a viable solution? And is that the best route that we see going forward? Herd immunity acquired through natural infection is going to be very painful for the society. There'll be a lot of lives lost. I don't think that's a viable path forward to tackle this disease. Herd immunity acquired through vaccination is what we want. And we certainly have some vaccines in trials. We have 140 odd vaccines that are being uh, tested in different stages of development. And I feel that by end of 2020, 
you will probably have a handful of vaccines that would have proven effective. We wouldn't know the durability of their protection, and perhaps it's a market that requires regular reboosting of the vaccine. But I'm hopeful, based on the early human data that I've seen, that by December, you might have a few vaccines that are shown to be efficacious. That's a path that makes sense, and that's the one we should be following. Well, that sincerely hope so. I think we're all uh, hoping and looking closely at some of these companies that are leading the charge in terms of the therapeutics. Going back to the data, Pranay, can you give some insight into the reporting of COVID-19? How accurate are the reports? You know, you consider some people who may have had it but haven't been tested. You look at the positive antibody tests or people who, are, who die of other causes who may have had COVID-19, coincidentally. Are these reports skewed? And to what degree can we trust the numbers? The biggest shortfall in our ability to understand the spread of the disease has actually been limited testing capacity. In fact, we are still constrained. We still don't have enough tests for asymptomatic people, and the tests are taking way too long to come back with results. So I would say it's fair to say that the confirmed cases, even today, underestimate the true spread of the disease. Of all the tests we are doing today, approximately 10% are coming back positive. If that number was around 2%, I would say we were testing sufficiently. Having said that, the best guess right now is that 4 to 5% of the US population has had the disease as of mid-July, which is roughly four to five times the confirmed cases. But again, that is quite variable by regions like New York City found 20% seroprevalence for COVID-19. And on your question on quality of tests, I have to say there are many different types of tests. So yes, the rapid tests generally have weaker accuracy, but the industrial scale lab tests, whether they are PCR tests for current infection or antibody tests for prior infections, those are accurate to the tune of 98, 99%. There are other factors such as swabbing techniques or the timing of the test in relation to the time of the infection that can make it appear that testing results are quite variable. Even a somewhat lower sensitivity test can be really useful in identifying the highly infectious people, the so-called super spreaders. These people tend to have high viral load and high viral shedding, and they are the ones that are accelerating the community transmission. But the fears around the accuracy of the tests are mostly misplaced. And then the other part of your question regarding the reporting of the data, I think we have very little to worry about intentional, wrongful mislabeling of confirmed COVID cases or deaths. We know COVID-19 can kill in many, many ways. Besides pulmonary effects, it can also cause thromboembolic events and multiple organ failures. So you really have to trust the system and the physician's judgment on labeling the death and labeling the disease. And in the U.S. healthcare system, the payers have virtually unlimited auditing powers to keep the system on track. The numbers on that front are totally okay. Earlier, you touched on some therapies that are coming out and potential vaccines for this virus. You know, we're about four months into this virus. Mm -hmm. it's, we're, we're in mid to late July right now. And even earlier today, I heard of a government program where they're subsidizing certain pharmaceutical companies who are developing their therapies and in the later uh, trials of their therapies. Mm -hmm. So Pranay, you mentioned the 140 vaccines in trial period, but what therapies do we have available now and how effective are they? 
Well, one great thing the lockdown in March and April accomplished for us is that it bought us very precious time to look for ways to reduce the burden of the disease. So in this very short time, we have identified two existing therapy drugs which help reduce the burden of the disease. One is remdesivir, which is an antiviral. It's an infusion. And the second is dexamethasone, a steroid to help calm the immune response, which gets particularly inflamed in severe cases. So if you combine these two drugs with new care protocols that we have discovered, such as early pronation and early oxygenation, we have really improved the recovery time and reduced the infection fatality rate by over half. And then there are other therapeutic candidates that are also in late-stage development. And I especially want to point out the neutralizing monoclonal antibodies that will be reporting data in the next few months. So I think we have made some progress on therapeutic candidates. They're not curative, but they are meaningfully helpful. You mentioned the monoclonal antibodies. How durable are these natural antibodies? And somebody who may have had COVID and now has these antibodies, is there a possibility that they could get COVID again? That's a great question, Amadi. The short answer is that the chances are very high that we can get reinfected with COVID-19. On the question of durability of immunity, it appears that SARS-CoV-2 is behaving more like the quartet of circulating coronaviruses that I mentioned earlier, the ones that cause common cold. SARS-CoV-2 is not behaving like the original SARS or MERS. The antibodies in the original SARS lasted three to seven years in recovered patients. But we are finding that the antibodies for SARS-CoV-2 are fading quite rapidly. In fact, there's a recent research that's calculated that the half-life is only around 73 days. So there's a very dramatic drop-off in these antibodies in two to four months. So on the durability of immunity front, SARS-CoV-2 is acting more like the common cold coronaviruses. Those viruses, it was shown quite some time ago, do not leave humans with durable immunity. And that's surely one reason they continue to circulate widely in the humans. We can get those viruses seasons after seasons. And the ability of this quartet of viruses to persist is really quite an exception for viruses. Most systemic childhood viruses leave very durable immunity, like measles and mumps antibodies can last over 100 years. Even flu, which we appear to get repeatedly, is really a different strain year to year. So if SARS-CoV-2 immunity behavior is similar to the common cold coronaviruses, I would say it's likely that we can get it again. Now, how soon after the first infection we can get it? We don't know that. It's too early to say, but it's probably not within the six months of recovery. It's probably one year later or two years later, but only time will tell. So far, we only have a few anecdotal stories about a reinfection with COVID-19. So if the natural infection may not leave durable immunity, what does that say for the effectiveness of any of these vaccines working? Well, that's a trillion dollar question, Amadi. Well, we have data now from early human trials of four vaccine candidates, and those include Moderna, BioNTech and Pfizer collaboration, Oxford and AstraZeneca collaboration, and then the Chinese company CanSino. 
These are very small trials in healthy volunteers, but all the three Western candidates seem to have relatively safe profile. They appear to be generating sufficient initial neutralizing antibodies, and they are eliciting a cellular response that is similar to convalescent patients. So, so far, things are looking okay, but it's still early. The real-life safety, durability, and efficacy across all ages, especially the ones at high risk, the elderly population, that hasn't yet been established. That will be quantified in phase three trials, some of which have already begun and some are going to start very shortly here. And we should start to see that data start to emerge September 2020 onwards. But my rough guess would be that the vaccine durability will end up being very similar to the immune durability of the natural infection. So to me, it appears quite likely that the COVID-19 vaccines are going to be a booster market. Whether you're going to require an annual booster or biannual or longer duration, we don't know yet. And then I get asked the question about manufacturing capacity and the ability for these companies to produce vaccines in, in sufficient amounts. I can say that given that there are over 140 vaccine candidates, and especially because many governments, including the United States, are signing up for at-risk production, I think the probability is quite high that the developed market would have ample supply through 2021. I would say hundreds of millions of doses have been quantified by these companies as being available in 2020 and billions of doses by the end of 2021. But still, there are 8 billion people in the world, so there will be large pockets of the world that will lack access to these vaccines in a timely fashion, and this will take a long time to roll out through the world. And if, if it ends up being a booster market, as short as an annual booster market, that will definitely impact the ability to vaccinate a large set of population. That, that's, that's very promising news to hear that we're going to hopefully have the vaccine available to the masses, a mass production of the vaccine. That, that's obviously the goal. But I've read reports of this coronavirus mutating. If it has mutated, how effective will a vaccine be in the future? Well, Amadi, there already are many genetic variances of SARS-CoV-2 circulating. But so far, they don't appear to be antigenically meaningfully different. That means they attack our cells in the same way, they hijack our cellular machinery the same way, and they more or less function the same way. As of now, if a vaccine works for one of them, it should still work for all the other current variants, including the D614G variant, which a lot of people are talking about. In fact, one of the leading vaccine candidates has already shown that their vaccine behaves on this variant similarly to other variants. But mutation is a natural event for a virus. I should point out that vast, vast majority of mutations actually weaken the virus. And those strains are either not viable or are naturally squeezed out of the population by the healthier strains. And SARS-CoV-2 has a proofreading mechanism that reduces the rate of mutations, but of course it doesn't eliminate it. And you have to keep in mind that it is a probability game. More widespread the disease, the more opportunity for it to mutate. And once we start pressuring the virus through vaccines or therapeutics, more likely we are to force the virus into a mutated version that can dodge our techniques. 
So yeah, mutation is a meaningful long-term risk, but probably not in the near term. And your question regarding can our vaccine candidates adjust to the mutation? I would say some of the mRNA technologies by Moderna and BioNTech that are being trialed in late stages right now are very swift to be able to adapt to a mutation in the future. Moderna had their vaccine candidate ready, I want to say within 48 hours of receiving the RNA code wow. for the original virus. So our ability to respond to future mutations, I think that will be good. I think the big remaining question on vaccine is really efficacy across all population ages, the safety in large population groups, and durability. And Amadi, once we do have the vaccination, another big question is going to be if we can convince the population to take it. There's still a large prevalence of anti-vaccination mindset in the US and other parts of the world. And I fear that a vaccine developed in six months is going to face a lot of resistance. And really, you do need about two-thirds of the population to be vaccinated to get to herd immunity. Do you think there's a safety issue with taking a vaccine that has only been developed in six months? Would you take it? Why don't you go first, Amadi? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I keep hearing reports of another wave coming. In your opinion, do you foresee that happening? And if so, do you perceive that second wave hitting in the fall? Or are we already experiencing it now with the spike in cases, specifically here in Texas and in the southern states of this country? That's funny. I read somewhere, can you call it a second wave if the first one never really ended? <laughs> well, the reality is that the cases for COVID-19 will have a propensity to rise and fall, as they do for flu, cold, and cough. And that's just because in fall, we start congregating indoors more, and that weather is is more helpful for the virus to propagate. But I will say that if our behavior remains consistently safe, cases don't have to rise by a lot. And we can keep this virus in control until the vaccines arrive. How has the global impact of this virus affected the healthcare sector as a whole? Well, globally, hospitals had to redirect resources. They had to prepare for or attend to the COVID burden. So many elective procedures were deferred, and this happened everywhere in the world. Even some essential care was being deferred, especially for people in high-risk categories. So that wasn't a good thing. But that is starting to normalize now as we have the disease in control. I think just as important to note is that the health science community has really shown its value and has come to the rapid rescue of humanity. Testing capacity is being ramped up at a scale and at pace that I would say was previously unimaginable. We have already identified a few therapies that work they help alleviate the burden of the disease. We have a few more in late stage trials. And like I said, there are 140 odd vaccines in trial. That's a whole lot of progress in just six, seven months. So while this virus has been devastating, I dread to imagine the global deaths if it had arrived a century ago. Yeah, scary to think about. Diving a little bit more into the healthcare sector as a whole, um, you mentioned earlier that some procedures have been pushed off and non-essential procedures aren't being done. However, you know, I'm reading all these reports about layoffs within the healthcare sector here in the United States and um, abroad. To me, that seems almost counterintuitive. With the system being under so much pressure, wouldn't it be all hands on deck? Can you explain why we're seeing layoffs in the healthcare sector? Well, part of it is mismatch of resources and needs. So the elective procedures that you mentioned, 
that came to a standstill for a couple of months. These are extremely profitable for the hospitals. In fact, they make up for negative profitability of some of the other procedures that a hospital embarks on. So when the patients and doctors deferred these profitable procedures, the provider profitability fell dramatically. And as a result, the system had to furlough and in some cases lay off the staff. But it is my understanding that a lot of those procedures are starting to come back. Many companies are talking about inpatient volumes being back up to 95% of last year's levels. That's a big recovery. So as long as COVID-19 remains in control, I think the procedures will come back and will remain elevated. And I believe the staff reduction was a temporary situation that will resolve quickly. Earlier in our conversation, you touched upon the global impact both here and you mentioned emerging markets, you foreseeing them being pretty hard hit. Apart from that, you know, with you and the investment team, how has this virus changed the way you screen companies, the way you interact with your colleagues, and the way you just go about doing your due diligence in your overall research? What has changed? Well, the biggest change has been where I sit. So I've basically taken my work and taken it to home. And I think we've all done that throughout this. And face-to-face -face interaction has been replaced by Zoom interaction or Microsoft Teams interaction or a phone call. But access to management hasn't changed. Our access to research and resources hasn't changed. There have been some productivity gains because we don't have to go to work. Most of those productivity gains have been absorbed for many people by the children because now we have to attend to them. <laughs> Thankfully, given that our business is knowledge-based, by and large, things haven't changed a whole lot. The productivity of the team has been very, very high. And part of that probably has to do with the market volatility, which always presents us with new ideas and new opportunities. But I would say the impact to our business has been unnoticeable. Well, with that, I think that's a great stopping point. Pranay, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for your insight. And to our audience, we hope you found this informative. And thank you for listening to The Value Proposition. The comments made during this podcast are the best judgments of an investment professional. They are subject to change as more information becomes available. They should not be taken as medical advice or scientific certainty. All opinions included in this podcast constitute Barrow Hanley's judgment as of the time of issuance of this report and are subject to change without notice. This podcast was prepared by Barrow Hanley with information as becomes available. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be an offer, solicitation, or recommendation with respect to the purchase or sale of any security, nor a recommendation of services supplied by any money management organization. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Barrow Hanley Mawinian Strauss is a value-oriented investment manager providing services to institutional clients. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be viewed as representative of all investments by the firm. This podcast includes certain forward-looking statements, including but not limited to Barrow Hanley's plans, projections, objectives, expectations, and intentions and other statements contained herein. These are not historical facts as well as statements identified by words such as expects, anticipate, intends, plans, believes, seeks, estimates, projects, or words of similar meaning. Such statements and opinions contained are based on Barrow Hanley's current beliefs or expectations and are subject to significant uncertainties and changes in circumstances, many beyond Barrow Hanley's control. Actual results may differ materially 
from these expectations due to changes in global, political, economic, business, competitive, market, and regulatory factors. Additional information regarding our strategies is available upon request. The Global Industry Classification Standard, GICS, was developed by and is exclusive property and a service mark of MSCI Inc. MSCI and Standard Poor's, a division of the McGraw-Hill Companies, Incorporated, S&P, and is licensed for use by Barrow, Hanley, Mooney, and Strauss, LLC. Neither MSCI, SMP, nor any third party involved in making or compiling the GICS or any GICS classifications make any express or implied warranties or representations with respect to such standard or classification or results to be obtained by the use thereof. And all such parties hereby expressly disclaim all warranties of originality, accuracy, and completeness, merchantability, and fitness for a particular purpose with respect to any such standard or classification. Without limiting any of the foregoing, and in no event shall MSCI and SMP or any of their affiliates or any third party involved in making or compiling GICS or any GICS classifications have any ability for direct, indirect, special, punitive, consequential, or any other damages, including lost profits, even if noted of the possibility of such damages.